1: Everybody, welcome to Following Through the Cracks. Today we're talking with Dr. Joel Furman. He is a board-certified family physician, nutritional researcher, and six-time New York Times best-selling author. He serves as the president of the Nutritional Research Foundation, and today we're discussing his book Fast Food Genocide. So, Dr. Furman, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for being for inviting me.
1: So what what got you inspired to 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 talk about food and the way you do and nutrition?
2: Wow. Well, I went to medical school back in the um early nineteen eighties with a specific purpose of becoming a physician specializing in nutritional medicine. I was on the United States world figure skating team in the nineteen seventies. And I, you know, and my father was overweight and sickly and I learned health books, read health books for him to get in better shape and to help our stamina and competition. I just started reading health books in my teenage years and nutrition books and I realized that people were committing suicide with food and most of the diseases that plague people are self-induced. And that heart disease are not, is not natural and strokes are not natural. And now it's, now now 40 years later, people are still doing the same thing wrong. They're still committing suicide with food. So people are going in nursing homes with dementia. And people getting cancers. And, and these things, what I'm saying right now is nutritional science has made such advances that we don't have to have these things happen anymore. And if people knew how delicious healthy eating could taste, they'd realize it's not worth committing suicide on the installment plan. And we're, so I guess I got into this because I saw it relatively young, and I, it's been an incredibly exciting and rewarding career watching people get well. Because what I'm saying right now is that the same diet style that leads to maximum lifespan and slowing of the aging process is also therapeutically effective to reverse disease. I mean, if a person has type 2 diabetes, they can become non-diabetic in a few months. A person with coronary artery disease with chest pain doesn't need angioplasty and bypass. They can open up those blood vessels that flow back into their heart again. And lower their blood pressure to normal, get off their blood pressure medications, get rid of their chest pains, get their cholesterol down naturally... And I'm, saying, I'm saying nutritional excellence is 100 times more effective than medications. And so I guess the answer to your question is, I get into this because it's so incredibly rewarding to be able to watch people get well. And the more I've researched and written books, the more we see how pe- how dangerous it is to eat like other Americans are eating.
1: Well, you know, I I definitely agree with you and what I loved about your book is is it, it's very no nonsense and and just like with what you said, you know, you're you're laying it out for people. You're not sugarcoating sugarcoating, sorry. I think it's funny. I use that term, a good one. <laughs> Yeah. Um so you're not you're not sugarcoating anything. You know, you're telling people this is going to kill you. This this has to change. And you know, in a lot of books you read it and and they're saying that, uh, some similar information to you but they're they're not saying it in a way where I think people are always listening either they're saying well this is the science but you know we know the science but we have to hear things like what you're saying that you're we're committing suicide by food um, you know we are killing ourselves and um, and I think that that's more of an eye-opener than um, just hey you know why don't you try this because science says to try it.
2: Absolutely. And, and, and I think also, if people knew how dangerous medical care was, they'd, I think many more millions of people would be willing and, need, and show the necessity to changing their diet. They can't rely on drugs. I think the drug industry and the growth of the pharmaceutical industry over the last hundred years had made people think it's okay to eating a disease-causing diet because the blood pressure medications will take care of my blood pressure. The cholesterol-lowering drugs, the diabetic medications, my sugars look okay now. I'm on the medication. I'm okay now. They think they're okay, and they don't realize that these medications cause cancer. Like, for example, a study showed that women on calcium channel blockers had double the risk of breast cancer after 10 years of use. That, you know, statin drugs accelerate the progression of diabetes and cause you gain weight. And, you know, so diabetic medications make you gain become more diabetic, more diabetic, accelerate the aging and the morbidity of diabetes, and even an escalator court study was stopped because the people getting more drugs and more medical care were, were, getting, were dying much quicker. But the point I'm making is that not only is the American diet so deadly, but medical care accelerates it, because it's like, almost like an emotional or intellectual encouragement to keep committing suicide with food because you think they're okay now by taking drugs, and now you have the bad drugs, which are toxic, and increases with cancer, and you now have the same foods that cause the problem to begin with, which continue to cause their damage. So it's really, it's, it's almost like a vicious cycle that's, that causes such, so much needless medical and health tragedies.
1: Well, it sounds like we're, we're trying to clean up a, a flood on the floor before we stop the water from running. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so I always say
2: that people, it's like people are driving off a cliff, and we have a lot of ambulances at the bottom waiting to pick them up and take them to the hospital. But nobody yeah. thinks of putting up a barrier across the top of the cliff so the cars don't go over.
1: No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're. I mean, we've already talked about how people are committing suicide with food, but I think the word genocide is a little bit different. Can you tell us why you chose that word in the title of your book?
2: Well, thank you. Yes, I will. Um, there's a lot of reasons why. I think a lot of people are today are recognizing that fast food and processed foods and commercial baked goods and barbecued and and processed meats. I think the. And by the way. The World Health Organization has considered processed meats, barbecue, and fried foods as a class one carcinogen in the same category as asbestos and cigarette smoking. Class one carcinogen means it's definitive. It's not a a maybe carcinogen It definitely causes cancer. But nevertheless, um, I think a lot of people are aware that they're eating dangerous food and causing damage. But I don't think that people recognize that these fast foods and processed foods cause mental illness. And one in five Americans are now mentally ill. And we have an epidemic of psychiatrists using prescribing drugs, and we have people saying to go get more psychiatric care and more mental health availability, but nobody's talking about the cause of all this growth of the explosion of mental illness, the explosion of attention deficit disorder and learning abilities, of childhood defects and childhood cancers that never occurred in human history before. Nobody's discussing how we're starting out our kids in life with already deficits in thinking and understanding and learning capacity, and so... Number one, nobody's talking about major depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, and the, and the, how food is the major factor leading to this. Nobody's discussing the fact that fast food and processed foods, candy, and commercial baked goods are linked to not just major depression, but also criminal behavior and drug abuse. When, and so I'm saying two things right now. Number one, the link between commercial baked goods and fast food and major depression is very solid in the scientific literature. And even two servings of baked goods, like like pizza and croissants and bagels a week. Even two servings a week have been shown to double the risk of depression. Actually, it's a 51% increased risk of major depression if you eat commercial baked goods and white flour products. And it goes up from there in a, in a dose-dependent manner. You eat three or four or five or six servings a week, your you risk, your white risk goes up from 50% to 60% keeps going up. And um, who's talking about this, the idea that you feed your kids candy at Halloween and birthday parties and marshmallows and all this junk artificial coloring and... And who's talking about the link between these foods and later-life crime and, and damage, actually damage to the brain, increasing the child's risk of later-life criminal behavior and drug abuse? And half the people in federal prisons today are there because of nonviolent drug-related offenses. So I'm saying that fast food, processed food, and sugar leads to drug-seeking behavior And leads to addictive behaviors with food that eventually lead to more brain, the need for brain stimulation, and the drive to consume drugs for that stimulation. And there's a link, there's a strong link there. And the link between later life drug use and crime, and early life consumption of candy in childhood, is greater than the link between poverty and crime, and lack of parents and crime, or bad parenting and crime, or emotional. And and, um, and economic starvation. In other words, the, it's the closest link is is actually the food that's fed in these, um, you know, in, in early in life. Um, furthermore, nobody's talking about the fact that these foods damage the genes. So you leave, or you, you have weaker children, more disease prone future generations. And, and so nobody's talking about the genetic damage to the, to your offspring. That, that matter of fact, it goes on not just to one generation, but two generations. That means when you eat junk food, fast food, and baked goods and donuts and fried donuts and fried and, fried, and french fries and fried chicken, when you eat these, this cancer causing food and you get cancer, you weaken the health of your children and your grandchildren in the process because it affects the genes. And who's talking about that science? And lastly, why the word fast food genocide is who's discussing, you know, the, Seven times the risk of stroke in urban communities and fast food deserts. And 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 we're talking about strokes before age 45. All the people going into nursing homes in their 30s and 40s and 50s, not just in their 70s and 80s. You know, who's talking about the 10 times disparity in heart disease occurrence, the, the amount of obesity and diabetes in, in these poor areas, leading to... Um, of 45 years of potential life lost. When scientists actually calculate the years of potential life lost in fast food deserts, it's 45 years for people with obesity or diabetes living on fast food. So what I'm saying is false food genocide even seems like a wild and um, exaggerated word, but when you really look at all the data, all the scientific studies and the real harm that's occurring, it really makes a lot of sense and it's justified.
1: Well so uh, you know if if this is is killing us how did we end up at this point, I mean, what what happens? It, I I think is when you when you change your diet, it's actually not socially acceptable to to eat well, and people are like, well, you know, why why aren't you eating this other stuff? This you know, the cake I brought in to work today, or, or whatever. Um, so how did we get to a point where it, it's um, we're eating so unwell, and and we can't even get our heads around eating properly?
2: Um, You're you're 100% right, and I think that people underestimate the addictive nature of sweets and processed foods, and it has to do with, part of it has to do with how fast the calories enter the bloodstream, because when you're eating foods with, like, oil, marshmallows, and don't forget that most of our population have been brainwashed to accept the idea that oil, like olive oil, is a health food. The fact that you can get 120 calories into your bloodstream in five minutes And rush and get a dopamine effect in the brain from all the caloric stimulation. Nobody's talking about how addictive oils are and how how they turn up the appetite. They ratchet it up so you desire more food and eat more food, and how fattening they are. And the average American is consuming over 300 calories from oil a day, leading to obesity. But I'm talking about these foods that are digested rapidly, like sugar and honey and maple syrup and white flour and oils, that they, they enter the bloodstream so rapidly. And the rapid flux of calories into the bloodstream has an effect on the brain like cocaine. It, sign- it, it sets off dopamine receptors just like how you taking an, an, a narcotic. And people live to replicate that sensation. But you become dopamine insensitive over time. And you require more food, more calories, larger meals, more frequent feedings. You require it to feel okay. And just like the high of cocaine or, or, or you could say or of opiates, Food, processed food that's designed to be absorbed so rapidly and flood the bloodstream so quickly also has withdrawal symptoms and makes people feel shaky and weak, sickly, little anxiety, stomach cramping, headachey when they try to stop eating the food. So just like when get, whenever something is unhealthy for you, you don't just get a high, you also get a low when you try to come off of it. And now people feel shaky and weak trying so they have to keep, keep eating these rich foods all the time to get their energy Because depend- they become dependent on the excess calories and the rush of calories for not to feel fatigued. Because when you're in the catabolic phase of the digestive cycle, that means when you're not digesting calories and you've utilized all the glycogen, or you're, util- you're utilizing the glycogen and you're not absorbing any more calories, your body is in a- an enhanced phase of detoxification and self-repair. What I'm saying right now is that he- healing and repair... And, and body able to fix and fix damaged um, cellular por- portions occur most effectively in a non feeding and non digestive state. But because people eat a diet that's toxic and so nutritionally deficient, they actually become um, they get a flood of toxins into the bloodstream, making them feel fatigued. They may have to exit the, the, the um, digestive cycle. So when in the non digestive cycle, they feel uncomfortable. They've got to keep eating again. So now they have to eat more food than their body requires, and they've got to keep putting more food in all the time. They eat too frequently just to feel okay. So, so how we came to this was because we can talk about it more after the break, but I think it has to do with you know the evolution of processed foods after World War One and World War II and the growth of the processed food industry and the pharmaceutical industry simultaneously taking over America. And then, the, then how addictions married into that magnified it and made it hard for people to really understand and once, people, once you're an addict it takes over your ability to want to think rationally because now your part of your brain wants to protect your addictive behaviors so it's complicated
1: yeah it, it is complicated and I do want to talk about this and we're going to take a quick break we're talking today with Dr. Joel Furman and we're discussing his book Fast Food Genocide we'll be back shortly Hi everybody, welcome back. Today we're talking with Dr. Joel Furman and we're discussing his book Fast Food Genocide. So Dr. Furman, before the break you were talking about the processed food industry. Um, so w- what is that?
2: Well, that's right. I mean, you know, we know that years ago people had to eat foods that they got from the forest, the garden, you know, whatever, whatever it was. But, but now, you know, after World War One and World War II, we, the rise of the processed food and fast food industry... So we can make food that was shelf stable, that didn't go bad, that people could take on the battlefield. Twinkies, tangs, spam, instant coffee was invented, hot dogs. So we made foods that could travel in a backpack, um, you know, stay for weeks out of the refrigerator. We consumed rapidly for energy. And, and then those foods became very inexpensive to make. And they, because they had long shelf life. And they didn't have because most of the cost of food, fresh food, has to do with so much um, spoilage and and to have to throw throw food away. So a lot of our cost of produce and fresh fruit has to do with when it's not sold, it has to be discarded because it doesn't keep well. So the cost of foods came down so much to transport them to be able to maintain their ability, and then we and then it became the most the cheapest and most economical way to feed our population with calories would be these processed foods, and, people, and we started eating a higher percent of processed food in the American diet. It went from 10%, you know, in the early 1900s, but by, by 1950, it was 25-30%. By 1970, it was already 50%. Then by the year 2000, it was already 60 percent of the American diet, and now the processed foods are like six, over 65 percent of what Americans eat. Are things that have, you know out of bags and boxes that are processed and, and highly palatable and overly flavored that rush into the bloodstream. And then we had the growth of the fast food industry that started in the 1950s and started to grow more in the 60s and 70s, and been now into, it permeates all parts of the world with um, with fried foods, and, and now we have. You know, meats and chicken is an animal products that are grilled, fried, deep fried, flame broiled, or barbecued, which causes heterocyclic amines and and nitrous, you know, compounds and other aldehydes that are carcinogenic in the way that the food is cooked, as compared to like boiling um, some chicken or turkey in a soup. Now we you know fry it or we bread it with it when we fry it in oils to make it more carcinogenic, and you know, so what I'm saying now is that. The fast food industry exploded making um, these foods, you know, burgers and pizza and french fries, readily available to the whole population. Used to be only available in restaurants at high prices. Now they're the cheapest foods available in the marketplace. Instead of having to grow your own food or to get food in the supermarket and make it and buy frozen, now we have to we go to a fast food restaurant. And people could live, and some people actually eat most of their meals at fast food restaurants where you have these processed foods. And, you know eating at fast food restaurants just two to three times per week increases the risk of dying from coronary artery disease, heart disease, more than 50%. And of course, when people eat fast food four or more times a week, the risk of dying from heart disease goes up to more than 80% compared to people eating it once a week. And by the way, even eating fast food just once a week increases heart disease death by 20%. So we're talking about, and even the moderate consumption of fast food leads to premature death. For example... One serving of commercially cooked French fries a week increases risk of breast cancer, just one serving a week, by more than 26%. So, I mean, that's huge from one serving a week. Because people could say, oh, yeah, you know, but I only do it in moderation, you know. But, but look, I'm literally giving data here to suggest that even two com- two servings of white bread, you know, or bagels or pizza a week doubles your risk of depression, Two servings a week increases your risk of heart attacks by more than 50 percent. We're talking about major risks just from a small intake of these foods. You know, so we we've underestimated, we've tremendously underestimated the damage from making these Franken foods that never existed before in human nature. And these fast foods have many have different characteristics. They're digested and absorbed rapidly. They contain multiple synthetic ingredients and chemicals in them, some of which are possible carcinogen carcinogens, they're calorically dense, you're going to access a lot of calories really quickly, and we know that with every study ever done on animal lifespan and human lifespan, the less calories this animal is fed, the longer it lives. And we're doing the opposite. We're trying to keep as much calories as we can and not recognizing that it's, it's moderate caloric restriction that extends life. And even moderate caloric excess has a huge effect on shortening life. And these foods are nutritionally barren. They don't contain fiber. They don't contain antioxidants and phytochemicals that have anti-cancer effects. They're highly flavored. They contain excess salt and sugar. And they're designed to stimulate the taste buds. That be called highly palatable, which means as you eat them, they deaden the taste buds. So now a strawberry has no taste and, a flavor, and an avocado and a piece of... You know, um so no longer tastes flavorful, and a strawberry no longer is that sweet. and and nat- now natural foods lose their flavor because people have deadened their taste buds with these rapidly absorbable, highly palatable, empty ca- empty calorie, processed foods, which actually behave like poisons. And you know we're talking about, um, they're just as bad as cigarette smoking, right? Because the risk of cigarette smoking from two cigarettes a week is less than the risk of two servings of fast food and processed foods
1: a week. Well, you know, I I read that in your book, you know, that that um, eating fast food kills more people than cigarettes. That was a line in your book. And, I, you know, although I, I understand the dangers of fast food and I know what we're doing and I see metabolic syndrome and heart disease, I hadn't thought about it that way before. And, and you know, it... it, it made me kind of do a double take of like we're we're just not we're not making the changes the way we need to where you know i mean even if you if you talk to your doctor they'll often tell you diet has nothing to do with the way you are you need to take medication for you know your your diabetes your blood pressure all those things that can be changed with, with food and 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 it, it it baffles me that that we're still not you know we should have the warning signs on your your big mac bag Saying, you know, this is going to cause heart disease the same way we do with cigarettes.
2: Exactly. You know, I mean, I always make the point that let's say we never invented like the drugs to lower blood pressure or lower cholesterol or lower or lower blood sugar and diabetes. If we never invented those medications. then doctors would be forced to have to tell people, you've got to cut out the salt. You've got to start exercising every day. You've got to start eating mostly vegetables and drop 15, 20 pounds, because we've got to get your blood pressure lower and we've got to get your cholesterol lower. And we gotta revert and we gotta, you know, make your chest pains go away. We gotta make your diabetes go away. Diabetes can kill you because blindness, kidney failure, leg amputation. We've got to get rid of your diabetes, you've got to change the way you're eating and lower your blood sugar. But now we give them a drug, which is a permission slip to keep you in the same diet. And it also and by the way, I mentioned earlier drugs cause you to gain weight and accelerate your diabetes anyway. What the point I'm making right now is that mostly, and doctors don't realize, not only do they not talk about nutrition, which to me is malpractice because you didn't give a person informed consent. They're not People aren't told about the dangers of the medication. They're not told how effective nutritional excellence is to reverse disease and to give people the opportunity to really get totally well from psoriasis, to really get totally well from rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, Sjogren's syndrome, lupus, and they're just given drugs. The medical profession evolved to be an arm of the pharmaceutical industry, to be a drug distribution and prescribing expert. As a medical doctor, and I'm, of course, a me- you know, board-certified family physician, but you're trained as to be an expert in prescribing. And you're not trained to be an expert in have, helping people reverse their disease with the art of motivational skills, the art of teaching them about nutritional excellence, having to teach being a great chef, being able to show them how healthy foods can taste fantastic, how you can take people into your office and show them that you can show them a healthy meal that tastes taste better than the junk food meals they're eating, how to make a healthy ice cream with frozen bananas and macadamia nuts and walnuts and some real vanilla bean powder. And, to put, you know, we're not really taught doc- The things doctors need to know, what they're learning, is so far divorced from what people need to hear that we're talking about a massive change in society if we're going to affect change. And that's, of course, you can, you can understand why I'm so passionate about this. But there is the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, a group of physicians that's exploding now with its own board certification that does specialize in doctors that do use lifestyle medicine and are trying to get people off drugs. And they, and of course, my books are heavily read and distributed by, by that organization as well, because when these doctors are surveyed as to what doctors and what books they utilize to help the patients, my, my, book come, my books come out you know, on top most of the time. So it's very, very um, proud of that, that other doctors are using my materials and that there is a growing army of doctors embracing this material. And I'm not criticizing all doctors. I'm criticizing, of course, the development of the medical profession and how it's evolved over the years. Now, most doctors make their bread and butter by running people in and out to their office at a relatively fast rate they can decide what medic- what give a diagnosis so they can ascertain what medication is right for them so they could write the prescription, and the person could leave with a prescription in their hand. That's mostly what doctors do. It's not what our population needs to solve our health care crisis, to save lives, and to avert human tragedies. Because right now, it's nutrition is where the money's at, is where the power's at to get people well.
1: Well, you, you know, I, I agree with you, and, and um, until it, it does get accepted by doctors, I know that they're, you know, main, mainstream. Um, I, there there are people who, I had this conversation yesterday when I, you know, I was looking at your book, and and um, it came up that somebody's, you know, mother was um, diabetic, but she believed what the doctor said, and she was going to take her, her insulin for her type 2 diabetes, and, you know... Um, Instead of, you know, changing things, and, and I tried to say, well, you know, insulin isn't going to work on type 2 diabetes, it's going to make it worse, but, but this lady, right. her doctor said, so that is what she's going to do. So until our doctors can see that they need to save lives by changing their mentality as well, I think it's going to be really hard for this to overall change. Yeah,
2: we agree, but of course... The change is not going to come from within the medical profession or from the government because they're too influenced by the financial power of the food and drug industry. It's got to come from the people, like we're doing right now, you know. And so this person that wouldn't, li- who would, wouldn't listen to you and would listen to a doctor to take insulin type of diabetes, which is actually, you know, very, which is shortening her lifespan. She really needs to eat in a manner to not to need insulin. So, but, but she didn't believe you. You know, so we got to reach out, and I, my feeling is, educators, teachers, college professors, you know, um, politicians, celebrities, people in the media, you know, and every person out there, every person listening to this. My, my goal is like to get people to have expertise in nutritional science, because it should be reading, writing, arithmetic, and nutritional science taught throughout the school system, because the the one most critical factor. That controls our health destiny and controls whether we have the intelligence to, you know, graduate from college or graduate school or have a good career or have a to be economically successful and to be, and have emotional intelligence and to have be happy in your life. That all depends on how healthy you eat, and we don't learn anything about that in school. We just think reading, writing, arithmetic. You know, and we got to get this we got to get this information out to our population. But as we're doing that, the change will come and grow from the population. It'll be speared. I mean, you know, it'll grow from as this word gets out there like we're doing right now. And that's really where the book, my book Fast Food Genocide, you know, it's funny because I've written twelve books. And as I get, as I'm on, you know, tele- television, let's say on PBS special or something like that, people start buying my books to, re- to lose weight and reverse heart disease. But the book Fast Food Genocide, which is probably my best book, is not the best selling book of mine. The other books sell more. It scares people away. They don't know enough to know how important this is. They don't know enough to know what they don't know. Practically, you know what I
1: mean? <laughs> so the, I, I do. People want to lose weight, but they don't know
2: they need to know more than that. This is, but I'm saying, I'm, but now I have people that you know, some college professors and some people are using the book now in college classrooms, and obviously, and I'm, on the, I'm on the faculty of Northern Arizona University Health Science Division. So I'm, I'm getting, the, I'm working on getting the information out there. And I just, I'm not the only one, of course. You know, mm-hmm. thousands of other people with same or similar messages trying to get information out. But I think that we – I'm hoping and I, I'm at my expectation is if enough people from the population start um, utilizing, learning, you know, how you say put the oxygen mask on yourself first and then be able to help and get in great health and then be able to help other people and talk intelligently to induce and motivate other people to make the change. So I wouldn't give up on that woman who was listening to a doctor. I like, I like, wouldn't, I just wouldn't give up. I would just keep going until – she had, was forced to read or learn or listen to a video or watch something on YouTube or, or due to recognize she doesn't have to be sick. And, you know, I, I published a study, you, you're probably aware, that showed that 90% of the type 2 diabetics became undiabetic within six months. And their hemoglobin A1C dropped from, 8 point, from 8.2 to 5.8 within the six-month period. All, and all the medications were discontinued, by the way.
1: Well, you know, I, I find that very encouraging because we're, that's not what, what people are told. They're told, you know, you need to take metformin, and then when that stops working, they, they go to insulin. And that's instead of, of, you know, changing their lifestyle that got to the, them to that point where they were pre-diabetic or diabetic, you know. And um, it, I, I like the idea that, that we can change it because I know we can.
2: Right. And you know what? And they become undiabetic before the weight is lost. They they drop, you know, the average person who's significantly overweight loses about 25 pounds in the first two months. They lose about 15 pounds the first month and about 10 pounds the second month if they're following my nutritarian guidelines for aggressive weight loss. You know, because a lot of people are sickly, need more um, to follow it 100% and be really strict. And they drop about 25 pounds and... By that time, the majority of them are off their diabetic medications, even though they might still be 30 pounds overweight, 40 pounds overweight. They're no longer diabetic. They don't have to, you know, they're going to still get healthier from that, but, they're, but they're, at least they're getting healthier. They're still overweight. And they're, no longer, they're still no longer diabetic. The diet, in other words, by that time, it seems like the beta cells in the pancreas come back a little bit. The body is less insulin resistant. The body is not, not stressing out the beta cells in the pancreas to work that hard, and your body becomes, utilizes the insulin more efficiently. So it's not even, you know, you don't have to get all the way there to, to great health, to get rid of your diabetes. It's halfway there the diabetes goes
1: away. Oh, that's amazing. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Dr. Joel Furman. We're discussing his book, Fast Food Genocide. We'll be back. Hi everybody, welcome back. We're talking today with Dr. Joel Fuhrman. Um, So, you know, we've talked a lot about um, what's happening, what, what, you know, the fast food diet and all this that it does for us, but what do we need to change so that we can have the health benefits that you and I have talked about?
2: Well, I mean, obviously I think people probably understand that vegetables are the most protective food for longevity. And our diet has to be vegetable-based, not grain-based. Most of the things we eat have to be different colors of vegetables in our diet every day. And, um, and so what I'm saying right now is if you I asked a person a question, what food, particular food group or food, shows the closest association scientific studies to low rates of heart disease? And the answer would have to be green vegetables. Then if I ask the question, okay, what food group now is shown to be most protective against dementia later in life? The answer would have to be green vegetables. Right, the next question, what food is most protective against cancer, like breast cancer and colon cancer and prostate cancer? Again, it's green vegetables. I ask the question, okay, what food is linked to, you know, um, what gorillas mostly eat? Green vegetables. as a lot of other primates mostly. The point is is that the, my mantra is that for people have to eat a large green salad every day as a main dish is one of the major meals um, because there's more than 200 studies linking the consumption of raw vegetables to low rates of cancer in a very powerful, dose-dependent manner. And the more raw green vegetables you eat, the more you the more you absorb and assimilate and utilize those anti-cancer compounds. So a joint salad every day, and I want people to use as a dressing, uh, a, a, a delicious and healthy dressing made of nuts and seeds. Like, for example, one of my healthy dressings might be um, to peel a navel orange and whip it up with some raw cashew nuts and lightly toasted sesame seeds with some... Blood orange vinegar, a white wine vinegar, and a splash of lemon could be a great dressing. Another glass of dressing could be a a low-salt tomato sauce or tomato paste with roasted garlic and some walnuts and balsamic vinegar and a few raisins. and You know, that could be a a delicious dressing. But the point I'm making is I'm making the dressing really healthy, too, on this healthy salad. So that first mantra is, can you imagine if everybody in America ate a giant salad every day? And Of course, in New York City, there's these restaurants in almost every other block. You see these salad bar restaurants and salad. Chopped salads and saladed and so but, but in some areas, you know, people don't live in inner cities. They don't have access to really healthy food like New York City does, but a lot of people do in, do, you know, in other big cities like San Francisco and Chicago. And But in any, any case, the second thing is the, the glycemic benefits of beans as your major carbohydrate source, that beans have very slowly digestible carbohydrates. And they're full of resistant starch, which is resistant to enzymatic degradation, which means all their calories are not biologically accessible. And because they're relatively high in protein, like the same protein content as meat generally, but when you consider that part of their carbohydrate content is not absorbable, it makes their protein content even higher, and their bean proteins do not raise those hormones like IGF-1 that cause breast cancer as do meat hormones as does so much meat and and animal proteins do. So we want people to get much more plant proteins, like eat stews and chilies and vegetable bean soups. So I want people on the weekend to make a giant pot of vegetable bean soup or bean stew or chili, and they can put it in the top, in the, the whole giant pot on Sunday into the refrigerator, and on Monday morning they can put it out into 10 different containers. And I really want people to change their lunches because we know that as you eat a lighter dinner, you extend lifespan. Because going to sleep on an empty stomach extends lifespan tremendously, and increasing the catabolic window of not eating at night extends lifespan tremendously. For example, a recent study showed that women who had breast cancer followed for 10 years had 71 percent, no, it wasn't 71 percent, it was 27 it percent decreased risk of death from breast cancer over the 10 year period if they ate dinner earlier and had a 13 hour window between the end of dinner and the start of breakfast. What was 71% were women with breast cancer for follow for 10 years who ate some lignans from flax that she seeds every day. Just a small amount of lignans had a 71 decreased risk of death of breast cancer over that 10 year period. There's so many of these studies that show that how protective these foods are, by the way. But of course, the point I'm making right now is when you ask me, you know, where to start? What could people do or where do they begin? I'm just saying, change your lunch to a salad, a vegetable, bean, soup, or stew, or chili, and a piece of fresh fruit. And can you imagine what would happen to our country if everybody just changed their lunch? Because breakfast is a lighter meal you have. Well, your breakfast is usually is if you just have oatmeal and flaxseed and berries and soy milk, and Your breakfast is easier to change. Lunch is the major meal that people eat out of the home. It should be where the majority of your calories are consumed, because you want to eat lighter dinner anyway. And... That's when people are going to be eating cookies and donuts and fast foods and and tempted by the workplace food. And if they bring it, if they just make the soup on the weekend and bake and make the salad dressing and bring it with them with the chopped lettuce and the onion and the you know and whatever you put the tomatoes and you put the healthy dressing on top. God, we would like revolutionize the healthcare crisis in America and we could cut the cancer rates by seventy five percent. Heart attack rates would drop by you know eighty percent. We'd incredibly solve our care crisis, reduce care costs. But, you know, like three quarters. I mean, we, amazing things would happen if people just made some small, simple changes in their lifestyle and diet.
1: So, um, you know, we talk about this helping us over time. But it, you know, somebody say they're they're in their fifties and they know they've they're they've been eating fast food their whole life. Is it too late to make the changes that they need?
2: I always joke around and say, well, if they're listening to this, they're not in the coffin yet. It means they can, you know, they can improve the quality of their life. And the point I'm making, of course, is that, you know, certainly, I'm not saying that every case of advanced cancer can be reversed. You know, certainly, as the diseases become more progressive and more dangerous, more um, advanced, it's more difficult to a, to um, to predict an improvement or reversal. What I am saying is that. Um Cancers, most people in America as adults over the age of 50 have some cancer already in their body. In, in early stages, it's not detectable by medical tests yet. And that those early cancers are reversible, and they don't have to evolve into more advanced cancers. And that many of the early stage cancers are strongly reversible. Predictably, and most of them can be reversed, but as cancer advances, then it becomes more unpredictable or bizarre and more um, where, where reversal and improvement is less predictable. But that doesn't mean a person's quality of life can't improve, and there's a lot of people who, and, it, and the same thing is true with dementia. You know, we lose brain cells, we lose our intelligence, we lose, our, we lose creativity, we have more emotional ability and less emotional happiness, but oh, that's reversible. And people can improve their emotional outlook in life, and their happiness quotient can improve tremendously. But once we start to get a lot of memory loss, and we get to the point of we advance dementia, it becomes irreversible. And you can't once this, the brain shrinks, if too much brain damage occurs, then then in healthy food is not going to bring that back. I mean, we can maybe slow it from, we can slow its progression, you know, from getting worse, and, or we can hold in some many cases hold its progression. But we're not going to regrow a brain that's been shrunk by twenty that that has ten percent shrinkage, for example um so yes we can benefit um almost all people can benefit but we want people to embrace this before they get to the point of having such advanced pathology that become almost impossible to reverse and and the point is is that um this is powerful stuff you know and and, and it's and it's so ignorant and so you're following the herd of you, of the american sad standard american diet into a into an unhappy elderly, elderly life. You know, what's funny is that what I'm saying is so, what's the word, um, you know, normal every day. So everybody should know this stuff. But it seems so radical. You know, I was on PBS the other day doing one of my pledge drives, and I said to, on the show, live, I said on the live show, I said, the American diet couldn't be better designed to kill people had it been designed by Al-Qaeda or ISIS. It's got the oh. whole the stock with the you know with the with the high level of processed foods and the high level of processed animal products and the low level of vegetation. So you know what they had to not show the show because I it must have been I think it was in I won't even say what we part of the country where it was in but I couldn't. Mm-hmm. They had to play the other part of the recorded show. They couldn't play the live show over again because they objected to that joke. And I'm saying yeah you know people are uh, you know I'm telling just telling things straight or even with a joke people you know you're always offending somebody but the point is, is that we've got to tell this to people straight people got to get this information and I'm sure there's millions of people out there that have um, that want to hear it straight want to change their diet and, and you know and as you can imagine from my outreach and the work of my books and my, and my exposure on the media has literally changed the lives of millions of people and I get thousands of you know, hundreds of thousands of people and millions of people have read my books and I get thousands of letters of people whose lives I said I can't even be in a in like a drugstore on a flight or on a in a shopping center or waiting for a a plane get boarding a plane for somebody not to come over to me and say just want you to know you saved my life, or you saved my father's life, or my mother had cancer and now she doesn't have it anymore. Or I, or people come up to me and say that I was faced with having my foot amputated with diabetes, and I saw your show while I was in the hospital on PBS, and I changed my diet, and my circulation came back, and you saved my leg. I mean, you, can you imagine how rewarding and how exciting it is just to affect those people I have positively? But of course, we all have got to work together as Americans to expand this out there because, you know, my feeling is that every person deserves the right to know and the right to achieve the American dream and get their full mental faculties to succeed well and be economically well-off and be happy and and not have to suffer with medical tragedy. So we gotta get rid of the food deserts. And, this, and, and, and I'm also discussing in the book how these foods deserts and the distribution of food and the inequality of food and the lack of education about food leads to racism and bigotry. It, it's the other part of fast food genocide is that this food disparity falls um, excessively and unequally on people in, in, in inner cities and, and black Americans and people who, who live in food deserts who don't, don't have access to um, healthy food and produce. So it falls disproportionately on a population that's already starting out without uh, all the right um, opportunities available to them. And now we further we worsen it, and then we blame the poor outcomes that then if occur due to poor food. We blame it on people's race. And I showed in the book that when you take any type of population, you feed them poorly, you get bad outcomes. It's not about race; we're similar than ever before. You know, the science shows, the genetics show that people are all very similar to each other. And if we feed our populations very healthfully, they can achieve much improve their human ability for human achievement and success and and prosperity and happiness, of course.
1: So um I know one thing that that happens when people are, are making these changes is that they they say the food doesn't taste good or they don't like it or they get frustrated with having to to choose this so what, what do you say to, to people who are having that kind of difficulty in making the change?
2: Well number one I want them to lose um, they want them to learn these great recipes so I want them to pick out, at least 50 recipes to try and then to come back to me in a couple of months with the top five out of the 50 that they like the best and the process of trying to ascertain which of their top five what happens is is that your taste buds improve and change as you try to eat food that's healthy because your taste buds get stronger and your smell gets stronger, too, by the way. When you cut the sugar and the salt out, your taste buds actually can taste the subtle sweetness and sugars and natural flavors better in natural foods. But your taste also accommodates to the foods you eat all the time and learns to like them better. So the combination of the for a person trying these foods more, or trying different foods that are healthy, and eating them more frequently, and trying to figure out which ones they like better, in the process, their taste buds are changing. And their taste preferences are changing, and their taste buds are getting stronger. And I actually published a study on that in a medical journal called Nutrition Journal in 2010, showing that out of 750 people, that after a six-month period, they liked the healthy diet as much or better than their old diet. Ninety—that was 90% of the participants, by the way, liked it just as much. But if you interviewed the 90% of the participants um, after three months only 20% liked it as much. It was when they went from three months to six months that you went from 20% liking it just as much to 90% liking it just as much, because it takes time for the taste preferences to change. So in the process, you give people these great-tasting recipes to choose from, and they finally find foods they like to eat. And as they're doing that, they start to like it better and better. And I tell people that are sick, you know, you're making the choices on what to eat. It hasn't worked that well for you. Because you're driven by your addiction, and your food preferences, what you like, what you're used to eating. What you're used to eating and what you prefer to eat has nothing to do with it. That got you into the trouble to begin with. But I'm going to tell you what to eat, and you're going to eat it no matter what, whether you like it or not. In other words, let me make a decision about what you're going to eat. And I'm going to prove to you that you're going to like this as much as your old diet, if you're patient and give me some time to work with you. That I'm going to promise you that you're going to like it just as much, but not at the beginning. But isn't there worth some effort to never having a heart attack or a stroke? Isn't there, worth some, isn't there some effort that just taking a pill, but you earn this. It's rewarding. And then you have it for the rest of your life to not have diabetes and not have a risk of cancer and not have a risk of a heart attack or a stroke. You get such tremendous payback from this that you got to put in your dues, even if you don't like it just as much as the first few weeks.
1: Well, you know, I, I agree. I mean, you've talked about how, you know, the food um, has has higher flavor and it changes things so um, sticking to it it's to save your own, own life you've talked about how this is genocide and suicide and, and really right. um, you're making that choice of dying early and being sick for 10 years before you do or living a long healthy fulfilling life exactly um, so if anybody has any questions is there any way that they can get a hold of you or your book
2: sure well, my website is drfuhrman.com, which is D-R-F-U-H-R-M-A-N.com. And because of, you know, I actually have a member center where people join to get recipes and to communicate in forums and read my questions and answers and telecoms and newsletters and, and track their health problems. I have a whole, you know, member center. And whereas the ability of people with medical conditions from all over the world can actually ask me for my, their advice and ask my advice on some of their, if they choose that. So I do spend about... You know, maybe an hour or two a day actually answering questions on the website, and and you know preparing articles, and so yeah, I'm, I have a whole like trying to cultivate a support system for people who really want to change and they feel well. I don't, I don't. I know that you know if you feel alone, it could make it more difficult. We want people to feel camaraderie and there's thousands of other people doing it with them and rooting for them and helping them along the way. So yes, I, I that's very enjoyable to me.
1: Well, I I love that there's that support there, and and I I've and. In- thoroughly enjoyed your passion today I want to thank you so much for for joining us and for everything that you've done to, to save lives
2: well thank you so much and same to you of course and best of health and um, to, to you of course and all your listeners
1: well, thank you so much and um, I want to thank everybody for listening just be sure to make today a great day
0: thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks